0: Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. My co-host, Ellen McGirt, is on vacation this week. Uh, So I've got to handle this one all my own, but I'm really excited about it. I'm with a woman who I've gotten to know pretty well over the last few months, Ravathi Advaithi, who is the CEO of Flex, which is one of the biggest companies you may have never heard of, but you're going to hear a lot about it in the next 30 minutes. So Ravathi, thank you so much for being with me.
1: Alan, thanks for having me. I'm excited to to talk to you about manufacturing and the world of Flex.
0: And all that is going on in the world. You touch so many parts of it in so many interesting ways, but let's start with the basics. Explain what Flex is and what Flex does.
1: Absolutely. So Alan, Flex is the third largest manufacturing company in the world. We're a 24-ish billion dollar company revenue-wise, and we make Probably products that touch you every day, everything you can think of from medical products to consumer products that you use in your home to automotive components, so we make a little bit of everything. We but they they around. never
0: they never say flex on the package.
1: They never say flex on <laughs> the package. We design and manufacture mainly for our customers. Some of them we take to market ourselves, but they usually B two B, so they're not seeing it every day. In fact, my kids showed me a TikTok video that was going viral this past week about a Spotify product that was getting shipped from a flex location and they said, mom, what is this? Are you making this? Can we have one of this? <laughs> one of the few times I get to be a cool mom, I'll tell you. So, <laughs> so we make a little bit of everything. We're in you know, around 130 manufacturing locations around the world. We have 160 plus thousand employees and uh, pretty much very, very global. I'd say a third in Asia, a third in North America and a third in in Europe. So very diverse in terms of our capability and right now based out of Bay Area for me.
0: Yeah. So flex is, as you describe it, it's in some ways a creation of the era of globalization. You really do operate all over the world. But we also know that the era of globalization has been challenged recently, certainly first and foremost by the pandemic, but also by geopolitical tensions, the whole U.S.-China thing. More countries are, you know, there's some degree of protectionism rising. How has that affected the way you operate?
1: I'd say first, Alan, is that the conversation around where you make things, where you design things, where you're located is changing kind of every day. So when... Tom Friedman wrote, the world is flat. I would say the world was a whole different place altogether. And we were, you know, flex and manufacturing companies across the world was created as a result of people taking advantage of labor arbitrage across the world and moving to manufacturing at the lowest cost that you could make products at. Now that has changed significantly. One of the big focuses, kind of where is design and innovation the best? And then where is manufacturing the best? And then to add to of all, all of that, as you talked about, the trade tariff issues are big, the cost of shipping components across the world, yeah. finding a freight and then affording it like in a container is pretty expensive today. So all the decision about where do you design something, where do you make something, how do you ship it to, I'd say has changed significantly just in the last four to five years. Yeah. So we're a very significant part of that conversation, not just with governments in terms of how policy is impacting this, but with our customers in terms of what is the right place to make things that provides the lowest cost, but also the lowest risk possible for them in in terms of getting the right shipments. I'd say a classic example would be medical, Alan. Doesn't matter if it's a trade issue or if it's a pandemic issue, the last thing you want to be doing is stopping diabetes patients from getting their glucose monitoring equipment, right? so. Yeah. You have to make sure that's made in the right place with the least amount of risks. And those are the kinds of decisions that Flex is shaping for its customers every single day.
0: Yeah. I mean, I would think it's very difficult. I mean, we see so many examples of this, right? Everybody's been reading about what's happening to the automobile industry and the inability to get computer chips. We all live through the toilet paper scramble in the United States that when huge wrenching changes happen to the world supply chains get greatly disrupted and you're at the center of the supply chain
1: that's right and you know the I think the chip conversation is a fantastic one and all of us are hearing about it it's become such a significant part of the conversation you know if you go to a car dealer to buy a car today my colleague said she went to a Toyota car dealer and she said there were two cars that they could sell to her wow. that was available. <laughs> two in the entire lot. So we're dealing, the the chip shortage has brought to the forefront the conversation of how resilient is your supply chain? So it is a little shocking that we would wake up one day and say, you know, we didn't realize that the global semiconductor industry was consolidated around a few players. And the risks (laughs) associated with those few players is so significant that it could stop whether you get you know like i said a diabetes monitoring equipment or a car right or the laptop to your house so it is great that we are having those conversations and the diversification will happen of the supply base in important areas like that but i would say that there's a lot of work to be done the 50 billion dollar you know bill that the us just passed is I would say, the tip of the iceberg. There is so much work to be done to kind of look at the supply chain all the way through, including rare earth metals that go into these kinds of components. And how do you make sure there's always alternate sources or the best sources so you don't get into a situation like
0: this? And to what extent do your customers say, that's your problem, (laughs) Rivati? You deal with that for us. You figure out and make sure that we have the supply we need when we need it.
1: I'd say you know, many of them would say that, but many of them today are sitting down and saying, I want to design this with you, right? I yeah. want to figure out how far should I go into my bill of materials to really understand where is it coming from? What are the sources of risk? If there is a tsunami in Japan, what does that mean? If there is a weather issue in Texas, what does that mean to my supply chain? So having those conversations with customers and the ability to have those conversations with customers has become pretty significant today. Maybe two years ago, they were saying, you know, I think you'll figure this out. Now they're all saying, I want to work with you in redesigning this. And I'd say it is happening at the C-suite, Al, and every CEO is talking about, you know, de-risking their supply chain, supply chain resiliency. You know, how do I get my components and make sure I get them forever without trade issues? So it is a partnership.
0: Yeah, uh, now it's interesting you're based in Silicon Valley, the company's legal headquarters is in Asia, isn't it?
1: That's right. We are legally headquartered out of Singapore. Yeah. But, you know, it was originally founded here in the Bay Area by the founders really? and um, has had a pretty significant presence here in the Bay Area for a while.
0: And and are you there because the design talent there is so strong? You probably don't do a huge amount of manufacturing in the Bay Area.
1: We have a pretty significant presence in the Bay Area in terms of manufacturing, which is a combination of design, it's a combination of prototyping manufacturing with our customers, so they're able to come into different locations here in the US, including the Bay Area, and then actually be able to transfer it if they need to, to other parts of the yeah. world. So we manufacture right here, close by, two miles down the road for many customers, and some of them come and build their prototypes here, and then we move it away for them.
0: I think you said you were the third largest manufacturer in that's the world? Correct. That's that's right. an Impressive statistic, but it also had to be a tough position to be in during the pandemic. Uh you had to keep your factories open, you had to supply your customers. How did you do it?
1: Yeah, so Alan, it was my second year, starting my second year as CEO in this job. I had just joined and gone through the whole trade issue and the impact of that. And, you know, waking up and figuring out that suddenly the world's gonna shut down when People needed computers in their house. You know, suddenly you're ordering coffee machines like there's no tomorrow. You know, does the data center infrastructure that needed to be kept running? I just heard the Best Buy CEO talk in your last podcast about how they went to curbside. Well, we had to get all those products to our customers and then to Best Buy for it yeah. to show up in curbside. So the responsibility was very significant because the biggest issue was it was a human crisis. So when you're asking 5,000 people to show up in a factory to make a product, the first thing that was in my mind was, how do you do it in a safe way? and should you even ask them to show up, right? And what is the right thing to do? And what we have only three values, Alan, and one of them is we do the right thing always, right? So as an example, we're shut down in Malaysia in the middle of the crisis, a lot of data center infrastructure products come out of our location in Malaysia, and we needed that to keep a lot of our customers running. And one of the CEOs called me and they said, hey, listen, you need to figure out how to get your employees back. And the first thing I said was not till it's safe, right? Not till we know for a fact that it is safe, because I was in March, April, when nobody knew what the right thing was and we were learning every day. And so till we could do that, which we did in a short week's time in terms of having safety protocols and all that we didn't bring back our employees. We were very comfortable with that situation. Wow. You must and have had after- some
0: you must have had some angry clients though.
1: You know what is amazing about it, Alan? Almost every customer CEO understood that it was a health and human crisis Mm. and doing the right thing. In fact, you know, this particular customer called me back in a month's time and said, you know, I applaud you for just doing what you did because the way you did it was so much safer because as our employees came back, they felt so much better about it. All our customers loved us for that, right? That was kind of the most important thing. Yeah, did it affect shipments? And did we have to ramp up, ramp down? All that is true, but I think I didn't have a single customer who told me focus on your people first and that's not that shouldn't be the most important thing you do.
0: I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte U.S., which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, leadership in crisis is very different than in normal times. You have to make these gut-wrenching trade-offs and very fast decisions. What kind of advice do you give to leaders who are navigating these very choppy waters? There are a few critical dimensions that have to come together seamlessly. You obviously need to be able to get to the right decisions quickly. And that takes the ability of the executive team and the board to synthesize large volumes of information, to make sense out of uncertainty, but just as importantly, communicate those decisions effectively to take your whole organization on the journey, demonstrating a sense of calm and confidence, finding that balance of delivering candor and straight talk, while at the same time laying out a vision that's optimistic, instilling confidence that great organizations will come through challenging times with strength. There has to be a light at the end of the tunnel. That's not an easy task. I actually view being realistic and credible around the current situation as the price of admission to be able to talk to your people about a more optimistic future. Joe, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you look forward for us a little bit and tell us manufacturing has changed so much, but I suspect it's not done. What is manufacturing going to look like 10 years down the road, 15 years down the road? What are the big changes you're preparing Flex to deal with?
1: So let me start with one is just kind of where we make things is going to go through another sea change. Just because, like I said, the total cost of transporting product of where you make products, the risks associated with it is all going to shift. And that's gonna drive an accelerated focus on how you make them. So whether, how much automation are you going to use? What kind of support systems are you gonna use in your factories to manufacture things? Because you can't hire people at the same way in the US as you can hire in China, as an example. So you're going to have to redesign manufacturing for that. I'll just give you an example, Alan. So in the past, most of our program ramps or product ramps would happen with teams of people traveling somewhere in the world, you know, sitting down and ramping up a whole factory to bring on a new product. We went like overnight, everything virtual. So a customer could kind of dial into a factory, their design engineers, our design engineers could all work together and virtually ramp up an entire program. And that's how things work today. So if you think about that, everything is gonna be digitized. Replicating things in a digital way is not gonna be hard. And now you move forward to, how will a factory four look like? The automation level is just gonna increase so significantly because labor constraints will continue to be a huge issue. That's kind of what's happening today, and we're gonna continue to see that. So we believe that in the future, I give this example often, when you order a coffee machine, you probably want to customize it and design it exactly the way you want to design it. And you want it to show up in your doorstep, like two days later, right? And for that, manufacturing has to rethink itself. So it has to be fully integrated in terms of automation. It has to be humans playing a very intelligent work in terms of how planning works. How do you produce the specialization required for your red coffee machine versus my green coffee machine? And how do you do all that in the shortest amount of time? So this intensity and the need to satisfy what I buy in the shortest amount of time is met. So you're gonna really see a whole redesign, I'd say end to end on where things are made, the level of automation customization that'll drive how manufacturing works. And then I'd say all the intelligence that goes into designing it so you can get the product whenever you want it in the shortest possible time.
0: So lots of change ahead R- will require a lot of investment on Flex's part, I would imagine.
1: A lot of change and a lot of investment. I like to paint this story, Alan. So my first job in the U.S. was in Shawnee, Oklahoma, in this small town near Oklahoma City. And I would drive to work every day one hour for my morning shift at 4.30 in the morning to get ready for my shift and start our whole shift off in the morning. and. In the future, any person driving into a factory to start their work probably have already seen kind of the work instructions, have already got a virtual Mm. planning going on that has happened in their car or ahead of time as they got up and saw their phone. And as you walk in, your computer and your machines are all programmed to start off what you were supposed to do, you know, well ahead of just walking in and manually doing all that, right? That's how the world of manufacturing is going to look Hmm. different from where we are today.
0: I'm glad you mentioned Oklahoma because I want to talk more about your personal story and how you got where you are. I mean, you're running this big global manufacturing company. I think this year there are only 23 women on the Fortune Global 500 list. So you're one of 23. That's a very small number. We can talk about that in a minute. But, But I think people would love to hear your story of how you got there. How did you achieve this?
1: Alan, I'm not sure most days, um, (laughs) you know, how it happened, I'd say. But, um, you know, I grew up in a family of five girls in India. I lost my dad at a very young age. And my mother was, you know, a single woman with Kind of no education bringing up five girls in India. And that itself is a story on its own. And, um, you know, I went to engineering school in India and did mechanical engineering because I was very hands on. I was the only one in my class of, uh, you know, men to do mechanical engineering. And then i'd say i always knew when the world was going towards i.t and you know all of that i always knew i wanted to like do something that was more mechanical that i could visually see that i was passionate about so i took like factory floor jobs right that was the first job i took and as a manufacturing supervisor and i loved it and my whole When you learn to work in Shawnee, Oklahoma or Hutchinson, Kansas, understand what makes people who they are and what makes their life who they are. I'd say I went from being this engineer, manufacturing person to kind of say, I just wanted to know what makes people tick. And I'd say that's kind of what started my whole leadership journey.
0: Did you get formal leadership training or did you learn on the job?
1: I had to learn on the job, you know, and had a lot of amazing people around me that I could look at and learn from. One of my favorite CEOs, who was a huge sponsor for me, was the CEO of Eaton, who retired a few years ago, Sandy Cutler. And Sandy was always great about kind of saying, you know what, you can go and do the next thing. I remember him Mm -hmm. telling me once when he called me about a job, I said, you know, Sandy, I don't hunt or fish or golf. I'm not sure why I can do this (laughs) role. It was to lead North America for something for the Eaton's business. And he said, you know what? I know that has been a prerequisite in the past, but I'm sure you, you can overcome all of those. And my family and I, we picked up and moved so many times. We went wherever people asked us to go do the next thing. My first son was born in England when I moved from Kansas to England. You know, we moved to uh, Shanghai, China for a few years. So we just kind of traveled the world getting to know people. And I'd say my leadership story is just because I love surrounding myself with people that I enjoy learning from. And I'd say work is just an afterproduct of it.
0: <laughs> Does it give you any insight into why there are so few women at the top of Fortune Global 500 companies and why, why there aren't more?
1: Alan, I'll tell you, I'm a huge believer that we don't have enough sponsors. Even people talk about it so much, but when the rubber hits the road, I see it in organizations I am in, right? When the rubber hits the road in terms of making a decision for that next job, there isn't a person sitting and saying, I'm okay with putting this person forward. You know, somebody would say, I don't look like you, I don't talk like you, I don't walk like you, right? So because of all those reasons, you don't fit that job profile. And that is the wrong way to make decisions, because most women would say, our skills are different, our leadership skills are different. Like I gave you the hunting, fishing golfing example, mm-hmm. right. I thought that was the criteria for the person who got the <laughs> job, right? And um, I'd say somebody has to say, it's fine that you know you don't have those skills, but you have these skills. And while we talk so much about it, it is not changing. Alan, I'll yeah. give you a statistic that bothers me a lot right now. If I look at the number of women who are applying for kind of flexible work, like at Flex, we're providing, you know, if you are sitting in an office, you can provide flexible work and you can work from home. 65% of the people applying are women. Yep. Yeah. Which is fine because you know we probably need that flexibility. We have childcare we have to think about and all of that, but think about how that affects future promotion rates. Think about how that affects more sponsorship decisions when they happen. So I'm a huge believer of there aren't enough people sponsoring women. And then I'd say on the side of women, you know, we have to step forward and be willing to take more risks, right? That we will go jump in and do a job that we think we're not very comfortable with. And we don't do that all the time. Yeah, And something needs to change there pretty significantly for this to work.
0: Are you doing things inside Flex to provide that kind of sponsorship you're talking about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're changing everything from policies to just providing flexibility. So we support women wherever they need it. But in terms of actual sponsorship and decision-making, we're just starting to hold people accountable for it, right? We're saying at the end of the day, there's no reason, we've committed to 50-50 gender parity in, in leadership positions for a company like Flex, which is, you talk about tech world not having enough women Manufacturing Manufacturing. is a whole different ballgame. And and
0: where are you? You're committing to 50-50, where are you now?
1: We're kind of in the 20s, so we have a 30% gap to go. But it's very doable, Alan. Frankly, this is very (laughs) clear to all my teams. This is very doable because this is not about not having enough women who are available to be promoted. It goes back to the decision of, are you making that decision to promote? and yeah it's about hiring people and finding the right skill set but we have enough women that we can promote to get to those levels and it all comes down to sponsorship so at flex we do great when we measure things so we're measuring the heck out of it we're looking at why people are making certain decisions and i'm very comfortable that you know we can get to that goal just by opening people's eyes to the decision-making process.
0: Well, as the father of two daughters in the workplace, I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, And and thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. really fascinating conversation about a fascinating company that people need to know more about. So we appreciate you being with us.
1: Thank you, Alan, excited to be here. I've listened to all your previous podcasts and said I've enjoyed it a lot.
0: Wonderful, thank you. Well, uh, 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 keep listening. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media.